Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today, we have with us Mr. Lane Kawaioka. Lane is a real estate investor with over 10 years of experience and control over 10,000 plus units. He's also the owner of CrowdfundAloha.com and SimplePassiveCashflow.com along with RayAloha.com. As a licensed professional civil industrial engineer with an analytical engineering background, Lane has real world experience in working as a project manager for over $250 million of capital construction projects in both the public and private sector. After working as a high paid professional in corporate America, Lane became frustrated by the traditional wealth building dogma. This experience motivated him to inspire and mentor other working professionals via his top 50 investing podcast at simplepassivecashflow.com and develop the HUI Deal Pipeline Club. SimplePassiveCashflow.com guides accredited and sophisticated investors who are looking for diversification and better returns outside of traditional investments such as mutual funds and stocks. In this HUI Deal Pipeline Club, Lane invests alongside investors and co-signs on the debt. As a group, they invest in Class C and B multifamily apartments, RV parks, mobile homes, and hotels. Let's give Lane a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. All right, so Lane, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. So Lane, before we hop in, why don't you... um give the audience a little bit about your background and um, what you were doing before you hopped into real estate full time. Yeah, sure. So I, um, you know, I started out investing in rental properties after I got started working as an engineer. Um, I was kind of led down this lie of buying a house to live in and investing in your 401k and um, bought that first house to live in and then became an accidental landlord. This is back in 2009. And Luckily, I guess I didn't really like my engineering job, so I kind of dedicated all my mental bandwidth to saving my money. And at the time, I'm buying. So I, in 2009 to 2015, I had 11 of those rental properties. But then, um, you know, started to interact with other high net worth accredited investors and started to realize, you know, they move more often to you know, passive investing in syndications and private placements and larger deals. And that was kind of the, the transition for me. Okay. And how'd you, um, how'd you educate yourself um, before transitioning into syndication? Was it just through networking or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, 2009 to 2015, you know, buying rental properties. So, you know, a bunch of books and then podcasts and, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of just doing things right just buying rental properties but um as far as you know jumping into larger deals you know 2015 going to like the apartments and the syndication um you know no book on that of course right it was just more um you know i got involved in a bunch of educational groups 
and you know started to meet other people and and you know mainly I, I focused on the underwriting portion because I'm kind of a spreadsheet guy um, started to learn how to underwrite the P&Ls and the rent rolls and it, so at least you know assuming that the data is correct right of course you never know um, you know kind of could spot out a good deal from a bad one just from a from a paper's perspective mm-hmm. um, and then you know, at, at one point, I kind of was doing that for a couple of years. Um, and that's the hardest part is breaking into this business and getting deals because brokers, they're no dummies. They're not going to give some new guy who hasn't yeah. closed multiple hundred unit deals a good deal. So just kind of got lucky there and got the first break. And the second part of that is, you know, you, you take for what you can get which was like a little 50 unit class C property, which are the hardest properties to run for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, it's smaller too, right? Cause you can't really raise that much money when you get started, but that was yeah. back in 2017. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of how we got started. And your first deal, were you, um, partnering with other, um, GPs on that, or did you pretty much lead that with just you yourself? What did you, how did you, well, did you yeah, run? I mean, my, my my first indication deals, I was a passive and okay. I kind of invested with a bunch of, you know, fake it to make it new unproven people. The first guy I invested with, I think, I think he straight up stole my money. I don't think, I think it was kind of nefarious to begin with, but um, yeah, I think that's kind of where I got the motivation to kind of, I didn't really trust people because I got burned two or three times. And I try not to remember it, of course, right? Because it's a little depressing. Yeah. So but... yeah, tell me. So let me make you sad. Tell me about that. Why okay, do you think okay. he? Why do you think he stole stole your money? Well, the first one was just like I mean, it wasn't apartments, right? The guy was like putting together like one of those house flipper blind pool funds, and yeah. um, you know, there's some kind of like like he brought in investors not in a PPM, but you would buy title to the pro i still don't understand that stuff like that's why i like the syndication stuff because it's so much clear right you're an equity holder of a business right. that owns the asset right but it was some kind of like lease back thing where the investors were all individuals they came in one specific deal so i you know i bought a note for like 40 grand and then he was the deal was he was supposed to operate it right and then mm-hmm. take his cut but come to find out, or at least what the people told me after the fact that were, you know, his his property management company he was using is the guy was just siphoning off the principal and just living off of that and then going bankrupt later on. So um I mean I'm yeah. like, all right, cool. But like that was a big headache taking over that property all the way out like thousands of miles away. And it's just mm. at that point that property is like boarded up and dilapidated. And here you are trying to um the sad thing is I got to put more money in to sell the damn thing, right? For not for mm-hmm. like 20 grand or even five grand. Or, mm-hmm. you know. And this was in, so this was in mainland, you're in, you're in Hawaii. Where was the property? Um, Yeah. At the time I was in Seattle, Washington, but this was all the way in Pennsylvania. Uh, okay. Yeah. All the way across the country. I see. Yeah. But you know, you yeah. know, everything is remote these days, right? Might as well be in yeah. Japan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, learning experiences, right? That's what, yeah, that's what moves us forward. Yeah, that, I mean, the lesson learned was like I met the guy through a referral from some self-directed IRA company sales guy. And looking back on it, it's like, well, what the hell did he know? Right. He wasn't no investor. 
he just probably had some beers with him the week before or they had some kind of swapping lead agreement right that happens all the time in this business and you know they, what i tell a lot of my folks is unless you get you know you 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 get to know somebody organically they're a purely passive investor and you know they've had a good full cycle run with an operator yeah. that's really the only way the gold standard of referrals the problem is i mean when i first started i didn't know any accredited investors or had the passive investor network that i got today you know yeah yeah that's what that's what i would tell any passive investor make sure you really know your operator because that even if you got a great deal if it's a bad operator they can screw it up and you can lose all your money so that's probably most more important than anything investing passively make sure you know the operator and like you said make sure they've been through some full cycles with the deals they're doing because yeah, I've even learned the hard way raising raising for some operators who haven't turned out to be what I thought they would be, which has hurt my ability to, to raise capital with some of my investors. Because it it, it blows, back, blows back on you, right? If you're raising capital for some of these deals and the operator isn't performing yeah, like they said. I mean, your, your business lives and dies on the deals that you go in to yeah, make yeah. a mistake, right? Um, Absolutely. But it's, it's hard, right? Like... You know, people, I mean, a lot of these educational groups out there, they teach people more about looking good on social media. And um, I don't know, they dress pretty, they dress pretty spiffy too, right? They give yeah. the look, the the navy pants that are a little too tight <laughs> and then the brown shoes and <laughs> yeah. the yeah, nice yeah, jacket, yeah. right? Like it, at the end of the day, it's all, it, I mean, it's all kind of canceled out, right? If you think about a math equation, it's everybody's kind of looking the part, but how do you really tell the difference between a fake it to make it and somebody with, you know, good value system? Um, at least that's kind of how I found my, my partners. And I think how I've kind of stuck around is, you know, things are going to go bad. Like today we own $2.1 billion of assets and kind of train changing the way we do, like what deals we focus on. But, you know, at the end of the day, like we kind of stand behind the product and, you know, put past investors first and, um, you know, but you know, things go wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's investing. There's always yeah, risks absolutely. in investments. So yes, it does. And when things go wrong, my main thing is you need to be able to communicate that to the investors rather than, you know, going ghost, right? Because yeah, it may not be what they want to hear, but they need to be communicated with so they know exactly what's going on. But I, I know I've had some operators where when things start to go sideways, you don't hear from. So that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not going to make excuses for other people, but you know, when you were when I was in corporate America, I didn't tell my boss every little problem I worked through that day or working through on a weekly, monthly basis. You know, that's crazy. Nobody mm -hmm. does that. Yeah. Similarly, you know, like there are things that, you know, you're working on, you don't you're you're uncertain that it's gonna work, right? Like whether that that plays itself in an hour, one week, one month, a quarter. Um, you know, sometimes it, you know, you're not going to say every little thing that happens. Oh, I yeah, mean, there's battles, yeah. right? There's battles out there. And, um, there is a fine line between, you know, what are good communications, what is upfront and transparent and what's too much information. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You don't want to give too much data for sure. So, and, and so you're, you're in your civil engineering job and. You're not really liking it. So 
what what exactly don't you like about it? Is it just uh, that that certain job, your boss, or what 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 drove you to say this is this isn't the world I want to continue in? Yeah, I mean, when when I kind of um, you know talk to people about this, I call it the triangle, right? It, you can either like the work that you do, the boss that you have, and then the people or the peers, right? Is the other three legged stool. Um, in my first job, I was working in a private company in the transportation industry, and it was, you know, very lower quality of life, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. we got paid well, right? So I'm not complaining there, but that one, I you know, I didn't like really like the people I worked for, and I didn't really like the work, so mm -hmm. I was kind of you know struggling two out of three there. Mm -hmm. um, but later on, you know, I changed jobs to you know a little bit different. Um, you know, more chill jobs. So I could, at, at that point, from 2012 to 2016, I was kind of starting the real serious investing, right? Mm -hmm. Then the then the turnkey rental buy, hope, and pray model. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of titrated down in terms of, you know, the, how much effort and hours that I spent at the work, my job. And then, yeah, you know, I got to the point where, you know, we had done a whole a bunch of deals and it just felt a little bit, uh, you know, not right to have a day job, right? And mm, to yeah. be kind of scattered. So that was that was around, I think, like 2018. I went full-time into this. And uh, yeah, haven't looked back. And now looking back, and I was like, I don't know those couple of years there, how I even worked a full-time job with all this stuff going on now. Yeah, absolutely. So so tell me, so tell me a little bit about um simplepassivecashflow.com and your HUI deal pipeline club. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think everybody talks about like, you know, start a YouTube channel, do a podcast, but in my opinion, that ship sailed in 2018 and then YouTube in 2020. Um I just got lucky. I started my podcast in 2016, but it was not to talk about multifamily real estate or syndications. It was just kind of telling my own personal story, buying rental properties. And at the time, a non-accredited investor. Mm -hmm. um, so to, that that was the secret. I started in freaking 2016. Um, and combined with the fact that it was a very authentic story that connected with investors and added value. Um, we we started at, you know, coaching investors how to buy turnkey rentals which was kind of how i started and that was where my ex expertise has at the time um so we build up an uh, a following and you know people refer to other people and that's you know unintentionally how you know the, i made the transition into syndications as a syndicator and then you know then then operating and you know kind of starting the whole investment club um that I think really kind of started to kick off 2018. So I had a couple of years head start building that brand and building the podcast. Okay. And so I've heard you um, use the term rent to ratio. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the rent to value ratio is basically taking the monthly um, rents divided by the purchase price. Um, back when we were looking at little single family homes, we want to look at something 1% or higher. Um, with multifamily real estate, it's a little bit different because you know, you've know you got other income, other things, services you're selling, you're collecting late fees in there too. Um, so, but you know, I think this is the fundamental difference of why you're not buying 
in places like California, Washington, primary markets, mm-hmm. the rental value ratios just aren't going to work. Right. Um, at least the way that our investment thesis, we focus in on workforce housing. So not necessarily class B or C, but, you know, it's that lower middle class demographic. And, you know, now we're, we're doing new build development. So we're, we're actually building technically class A stuff, but it is in the range of $1,200 to $1,500 a month rent for one bedroom. Mm-hmm. So that is technically workforce housing. Um, but the reason why I do that is, you know, in, in case there's a recession or tough times, the, you know, people have to move down to, you know, live in these more value oriented um, living conditions. And, um, you know, I mean, maybe something right now to think about as people have to apparently pay back their student loans, maybe little Johnny who, you know, just kind of got by and racked up a lot of student loans. Maybe he needs to move out of his cool little luxury apartment for $1,800 a month because he can't afford it right now. The S right. pay five, $500,000 a month. So, you know, not, not that you want to profit off those types of things, but I just think you know, it's just a little bit more prudent investment avatar. And especially like, you know, like the demographics, most people need those types of living living prices, $1,000, $1,200 a month. So I'm um, transitioning. Um, so you're doing the development now. How, how, how big of a learning curve was that transition from just um, acquiring multifamily to actually developing that? Was that a well, huge for learning us- curve? I mean, for us, it was like, a, you know, we're able to utilize our operation experience because most developers, like they become distressed sellers right after they they build it. But mm-hmm. for us, you know, if they're, the market is soft or you can't get loans, you know, we're able to just hold and, and lease it up and cash flow and hold it longer, which exactly happened on our last project that we started in 2020 and finished in 2022. Um, you know, obviously everybody knows what happened, right? The mm-hmm. interest rate skyrocketed and um, it made sense for us to just kind of hold. Uh, but as far as like learning curve, I mean, this is kind of what I did in my professional life. Mm-hmm. And it was, for me, it was pretty comfortable. Um, I did a lot of horizontal construction as opposed to vertical construction, but really kind of the same. You know, I'm in the the owner's seat in terms of like, more project management and but mm-hmm. you know now I'm able to a lot of these projects are large enough that we can have a construction management firm and kind of like an asset manager but more project manager to kind of oversee mm-hmm. you know change orders that type of stuff and managing the contractors um I mean that for me it wasn't really a, um, a too much of a transition I guess okay. um I would say like my big expertise came in is like I used to be in those org structures as that junior engineer who had to mm-hmm. do all the hard work. So you're damn right. I know exactly how that, how this org structure looks like from the bottom up. Right. And now as the owner person at the top, you know, basically just recreate that same org structure that I, that is used on pretty much all construction projects out there. But, um, but yeah, still have my uh, PE license, you know, kept that around. Maybe if I don't know what it's worth, but maybe it allows for some street credibility with the staff or something like that. But yeah, I'm not yeah, stamping sure. or stealing any drawings. But <laughs> like for us, like it's it's a big bear to entry. 
right? Okay. A lot yeah. of guys can come in, buy a 50-unit, 100-unit complex, but man, you're dealing with people and tenants and like mm. I think something always happens. Maybe not a big black swan event, like interest rates jacking up in 5% in like a, a year, but like we've seen inflation attack all portions of the P&L. Mm. Um, taxes have tripled in certain locations. Um, insurance. insurance has yeah. more than tripled, right? Yeah. I, I'm like seeing something like quadrupling. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're on the development side, you just kind of pass those costs off to the end buyer and you don't, you're not really in the hold position, the operation position. And now you're seeing exactly why the institutions don't do value add multifamily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can make a lot of money, right? If if you do it right, but you know, it's, it, there is risk involved in it. Right. Right. And with your, with your thesis, your, your, your thesis, which, which States are you guys, usually focusing on is it the southeast or yeah i mean most you know, the red states right um because landlord friendly laws but you know you just tend to get things done a lot quicker mm -hmm. um maybe that's more alignment with pro economic um but we're more like the population is going up every year and that's typically the sun belt the mm -hmm. south yeah okay so Building a passive rental portfolio while working full time, which is how you started. Well, if you were talking to somebody who was looking to make that transition, what what advice would you have for them? How what's their net worth and what's their income at their jobs? Well, say say they are really... yeah, say they are say they are a working professional like a like a doctor or a dentist, and they're looking to get into this more full time. Because again, something like you, where you're not really enjoying your work or your peers, and you're looking to do that. I'll be straight up and say, dude, if you make over 250 a year, just be a passive investor. You spent so much time and energy making that high hourly rate. Mm -hmm. Being an operator is more for the young guys or the guys who don't make that much money. Mm -hmm. Why would you give that away? That easy ticket. It, I would focus more on being an astute passive investor and focus on your time building relationships with not the, the young GPs running around with their heads cut off. And instead, interacting with the older passive investors who've been around the block and know who are the real legit operators out there. Um, and and I, I talk about this in my, my new book, The Wealth Elevator. There are different rungs to investors. And that's why I kind of start off with those two questions. What's your net worth? Mm -hmm. And what is your income? Or basically, what is you know how much money are you able to add to your net worth every year? Now, most of our investors, you know, save a hundred grand a year or, or at least 50 grand a year at their day jobs. Mm -hmm. That's enough for you to you know, go into a deal every year. And if it doubles every five to seven years, conservatively, you'll be past that four to $5 million threshold, which I define as end game like that. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. If we broke down the numbers, say you're making, let's say you're making 300 K a year and you you're 50 making 300 K a year and you don't like your job. So like you said, you don't want to give that up. So if we broke down the numbers, well, how long would they need to invest passively to get to say a million dollars in passive income? Starting with, starting with syndications that they, if they did a hundred K a year in deals or even 200 well, K a year. Well, it depends what the kind of deals they're going into, right? Like, I mean, most of the more astute investors are going into developments because the returns are higher. 
and there's no cash flow, right? But who mm-hmm. cares about cash flow? If you have a job or you have a big investment portfolio, you don't need cash flow. You just live off of it. And this is kind of where a reverse paradigm is occurring. Um, you know, we used, I used to preach passive cash flow, passive cash flow all the time. But when you your net worth is past two and a half, four million, you don't really care about passive cash flow. It's more about growing your equity. If yeah. you can double your money in a deal in three and a half years, that's a heck of a lot of cash flow. You just have to manage it. And if you right. have that much money, you created that much money, you probably have the means, the the mental ba- mental capacity to manage yourself, not blowing that thing. And you know, managing and creating passive cash flow, which is basically just sliding money over from your investment account to your personal account on a month to month basis. Um, in fact, like that's where those those de- deals are a little bit more preferred because they have a shorter time horizon. Mm-hmm. A lot of multifamily deals, it's going to take you five, six years to go through the value add cycle if there's any kind of bumps along along the road. Right. But a development, I mean, once you, you can construct that thing in a couple of years. Yeah. So that's what where more sophisticated investors tie into, which is this velocity of money. It's not sitting mm-hmm. there and you're making mm-hmm. more. The hard thing is like differentiating between, you know, pie in the sky development deals and shovel ready projects that aren't building some kind of um, pie in the sky project or, you know, some kind of sexy, cool artist rendering of this that may never, you know, be built ever because it can't get permitted. Right. Yeah. So again, yeah. And that, that probably comes down to being familiar with your operator who, you know, has a history of success with those types of deals as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's a paradigm. There's a paradigm divide. If you're under a certain threshold and you're a little impatient, then yeah, go run your own deals. Just understand there's a big part of the risk. of Yeah. It. If, I mean, the way I kind of went about it, I just, I did the, I was the unsophisticated buy hope buy hope and pray investor with the little rental properties, but that allowed me to get pretty quickly to a credit investor status. Mm-hmm. And after that, you know, you guys do the math. Once you have a million dollars and if you're putting 50 grand into it and you're growing at a modest 12% a year, you're going to be past 4 million, you know, maybe in a decade or something like that, but that's not very long. Yeah, not, a, not at all. Not when you're our age. Yeah, that goes by pretty quickly, right? So... Yeah, I mean, part of this is time. And and like I said earlier, you just got to be a little patient. You know, this is not, if you're looking to get rich quick and make 25, 30% returns on your money every year, this ain't it. Go yeah. invest in crypto or- <laughs> I was thinking the same, thing. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, go to crypto. All right. And I, and I know you're, you're, um, you talk about um, infinite banking as well, which I'm a huge fan of. Can you touch on that a bit? Yeah, I mean- you know, it's basically using whole life insurance, but it, it all comes down to how you configure it. So like from a, from a real simple point of view, it's basically what percentage of it is insurance. So that's where the commissions come from. So what our agents will do for our guys, um, and if people want to reach out and compare the pricing and the break-even points, um, we, we do like a 90-10 split. So 10% of the policy is insurance which is very advantageous because that pretty much maximizes the amount of paid up additions. Mm -hmm. So the life insurance is there, not really for the life insurance. It's just a means to have a a ability to overfund that thing or those paid up Mm -hmm. additions. So the way to do it is, you know, 
I think average policy, like people will do like a hundred grand a year, right? For six years, they'll fill that mm -hmm. up. At the end of the five, six years, they'll have a 600 grand in there. But that's in the end game. You have this reservoir of cash that's making like 5% tax-free and litigation-free because it's life insurance. Mm -hmm. But what the way you're, you're using is you throw the money in there and then you take the money right back out, taking a loan from yourself to go invest in syndication deals or whatnot. Um, kind of, it's exactly, it, it's very similar to like a HELOC, mm -hmm. right? So you, you have your home equity, take a HELOC, and then you invest in deals out of that. You kind of have to pay the arbitrage between the interest rates. Um, however, I, it's much superior than a HELOC because a HELOC, you know, the bank, anything happens in the economy, the bank can kind of pull that note yeah. from you, the line of credit from you. Um, you know, you're able to kind of write it off. I guess you can do the same thing with the HELOC, but it, you know, it's, it's, you have a lot more control and the, the asset goes up a lot more predictively than with your home, your primary residence, your HELOC, you know, prices go up and down, right. With mm -hmm. that type of stuff. And then what I've seen, like banks, they usually sandbag you on the price of that, that house, right. Obviously mm -hmm. to protect themselves and give themselves a little bit more loan to value, um, advantage but yeah you know it's it's a it's a great tool for sure yeah um, i know i know some of my colleagues actually once they get that that in there they actually lend that money out at a higher rate so they become hard money lenders themselves are any of your investors doing that like uh, no, for smaller deals? typically our guys want equity right they want the upside um i mean depends you know, maybe you want to do 20% of your net worth in that type of debt or private notes, right? Like that's mm -hmm. fine. But, you know, most of the investors are in the growth stage and they want those higher returns and they're willing to take a little bit more risk to do that. So um, that's, you know, you can do that too, right? You're just going to have to wait longer. Right. And you can find like a preferred equity fund that might be able to give you the same, you know, cash flow right away. Right, month mm -hmm. after month um or you go into deals that you're going to get higher returns but you're gonna to have to wait for it right you can't really have the best of both worlds it's really one or the other um and some some things in between right but there's always trade-offs for cash flow now versus total equity growth okay and i know you're looking at um you're doing RV parks and mobile homes as well, hotels. Um, what is your what is your main focus? Are you guys looking at self storage as well? What do you think? Um, is? I mean, we we operate the multifamily, so that's our bread and butter. Uh, I mean, I would say ninety percent, ninety five percent of my stuff is is that. Um, the other stuff is more me as a passive investor in it. Okay. Um, but I, I don't I don't really I partially because I'm an operator, I. I don't really want to passively invest too much in other things, but mm -hmm. you know, I'm like self-storage, you know, self-storage, like everything needs to be a class, right? You need the, you know, you need like the, the gals to be able to go to the self-storage facility and it to be clean and open and very safe. So it needs to be class A. Mm -hmm. So if you're buying a class B class C self-storage facility, you're going to have to renovate it to class A. And that that lies the problem when a new self storage facility gets put up across the block, and they're really easy to build because they're just like dog kennels and lockers in them, right? They're super yeah. easy. Um, now they're competing directly with you because they're new and they're Class A. Whereas you know an apartment, if a luxury 
apartment comes up next to us, like we just had this in Phoenix, um, it actually helps us a bit, right? Because we're not competing directly for the same clients. Right. They can take the $1,400 guys and above and actually help us push the rents and make the area a little bit nicer. Mm-hmm. And then we'll exactly. take the guys at 700 to 1000 bucks. you know? Exactly, okay. yeah. All right, sweet, sweet. Um, yeah, mobile home parks. I mean, they're they're not as simple business as I thought. Um, they are, you have to actually sell the houses, the mobile homes. Mm-hmm. So it actually is in a way kind of like a used car dealership business, <laughs> and and in a way self storage, mm-hmm. boat storage if you think about it, right? Because it's kind of moved on 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 wheels and gets plopped down. But yeah, it's more of a um, used car dealership in a way yeah there's definitely some nuances in there that a lot of people don't tell you about they say oh it's you should get it on so um rv homes but it's a little it's not it's complex for sure yeah yeah i mean it's kind of i mean it's misleading right because i think a lot of people say well mobile home parks is cash flowing it's more cash flow than apartments right well that's because you guys are selling off mobile home parks it's transactional. It's it's kind of like if I said, "Oh, you and I are gonna go make a row a row houses of twelve, right? New builds, and then our our business plan is to sell them off, right? Which is very speculative mm-hmm. uh, type of business plan. But then that's what's creating the cash flows. We're selling stuff off, right? That's yeah. why the cash flow is so strong. We're selling right. stuff off. Um, and, and, and those deals never work out, right? Like, Hey, do you want to go into this deal? We're going to buy this, uh, three properties and, you know, the first property is going to pay for the second one. And then once we sell the first one, it's like, yeah, no, thanks. Like those deals never work out. I've seen a bunch of (laughs) things never work. Yeah. Yeah. It's very speculative. Right. But if you can get lucky and sell the first one, yeah, you just banked enough cash flow to pay investors for the first couple of years at a very Mm -hmm. high rate. So it appears like there's cash flow, but the cash flow is not coming from monthly rental revenue, mm, yeah. But sales of um sales of of yeah. assets, yeah, unit sales, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Lane, before we hop off, let why don't we hop into a lightning round? So see what um makes you tick. Yeah. All right, so I'll start off with a softball. What? What book or books have greatly influenced your life? Um, I'm not a big book reader. I'm more just kind of do it. But I mean, real estate investing, uh, Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller, I think is a great one for people to start off with real estate wise. But, you know, I think the 70-20-10 rule, which is 10% is academic stuff, which is reading books uh, and podcasts, lump that in there. Um, 20% is meeting other people. Mm-hmm. The right people, right? I, I think mm-hmm. if you're accredited passive investor, it's other accredited passive investors, um, and then but seventy percent is doing it. Yeah, you for know, sure. You, you can't you can't write a really write a book on that stuff because there's too much stuff. Nor nor can you do a coaching program on that. Yeah, and I think that's why all these programs out there they they can kind of just teach acquisition, but nobody really teaches operation once you actually bought the damn thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they're good just for the education part. But like you said, that's that's only 10% of the deal. You, you got to get out there and take your lumps. That's where the real real learning comes in, for sure. But yeah, I'm actually reading Gary Keller now that he definitely has a few good ones. Yeah, yeah. All right, so how has a failure 
or apparent failure set you up for greater success later? Uh, yeah, I mean, like when I was first passively investing, I mean, my first syndication was back in 2012. I think I mentioned it earlier at the top. I mean, it kind of built a little distrust for me, I guess. So I guess from that, I didn't trust anybody and I just wanted to do things by myself and mm -hmm. kind of not just be the LP, but be the GP and take over. And so, and real quick with your, um, with your deals, do you have a GP team around you or is it just, um, you and a couple of other people that, that lead those yeah, it's, deals? It's very small. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've been in, in, in some of the first deals I was in, I was in these very large groups and most people didn't do anything, you know, and that's part of the concept of like too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Right. When there's too many people there, there's no accountability. Right. You know, like, I, I mean, I don't like meetings with more than three people on a call. Mm -hmm. It's just too big. You know? Yeah. 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 That's okay. the same premise. All right. And Lane, if you could have a billboard anywhere, with anything on it, what would it say? What would be your message? Um, don't invest in the stock market at, at a six to eight percent roller coaster. Just invest in real estate. Cut out the middlemen. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I would I would co-sign on that every time. All right, and in the last five years, what um new belief or behavior or habit has most improved your life? Hmm. you know i used to think at five years is a long time ago but yeah i mean five years ago i was a little bit shaky telling you know co-signing on people taking money out of their home equity helocs to invest somewhere like four five four years ago i feel like everybody started to do it and i was just like i guess makes sense where now if you ask me today it's like why would you not do that mm, yeah you know why would you not put your money into your life insurance and take it out the next day and pay yourself five percent yeah and then leverage the money elsewhere and play the arbitrage game like why would you not you know absolutely so that's what the banks do yeah exactly right for sure all right last one and i'll let you um get out of here on a Friday. So when you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you usually do? Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I go out, go out for a walk or something like that. Um, you know, I got to go play with my kid now. Try to got to get out of here, but you know, on their little tablet, they got, they got the Sesame street app game. And <laughs> when the little monster gets upset, you know, the, the kid rubs its tummy to remind it to breathe. Right. breathe first uh -huh. then you let the emotions subside then then in the game you there's bubbles that comes out of the monster's head and it's supposed to be synonymous with thinking think of things that you can do is this a worry or is this a concern okay. concerns are things that you can do about it and thus thinking of ideas to solve the problem is a good thing you should do but if it's a worry that you have no control over it then it's just being your energy down. And if you're in a negative state, we all know that that's not productive or it's going to bring the best out of you. Um, and, you know, 
I know that if I'm in a positive state, I will be high energy and creative. And that's what I need to do to get us through problems. Um, and then the last thing is do you execute that. All right. Excellent. Very sound advice. Take a little page out of the Sesame Street app there for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so that's the Sesame Street app. I'm going to have to look that up. Check it out with mine. Mine's yeah. a little, my girl's yeah. a little older than yours, but that sounds like it'd be pretty engaging for her. Have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes adults just have, they don't, they don't process emotions or act proactively just like kids. So. Yeah, absolutely. Even more so, I think. Yeah. Even though myself too, right? Yeah. But if you're conscious of it and you can pause yourself and put yourself in that loop, then you got a better chance. All right. All right, Lane. So um, before we hop off, if anybody wants to contact you, reach out, collaborate, invest with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, they can uh, reach out lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Okay. All right. We'll run that across the screen. screen. So Lane, thanks so much for joining us today. I know it's Friday there in um, Hawaii. So thanks so much. Um, I look forward to having you again on soon. All right. Ohai gozaimasu. Arigato. gozaimasu. All right, take care, Lane. Yeah. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.